0: Welcome to the Team FNC podcast, where we aim to improve your knowledge and understanding of nutrition. All right, welcome to the Team FNC community, uh, Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro. Um, So I've got Gabby here today to try and talk about bloating um, and gut health because she is an expert in the field. So uh, Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro, do you want to introduce yourself to the Team FNC community, who you are, what you do, and I guess why you got into nutrition in the first place?
1: Third thing. So thank you for having me. I want to say hello to everyone in Australia and that uh, I miss that place quite a lot. Uh, I hope to return once things get back to normal. Um, And I am known on the internet as Vitamin PhD. Um, I have my... PhD in the area of gut microbiome so I finished that up in 2014 uh, before the the gut health topic was like so so hot i guess like it is now and i was studying the potential protective role of probiotics in during high fat feeding that's usually associated with metabolic dysregulation and it was sort of an accident i actually started my doctorate because i was really interested in skeletal muscle physiology and biochemistry and sort of like the main metabolic pathways that, you know, we learn about, um, you know, in anatomy and phys and whatnot, you know, glycolysis and the Krebs cycle. And I was first studying the effects of just high fat feeding on uh, muscle wasting and hypertrophy, sort of those pathways. And I lost most of the samples for that study. And so my side project on probiotics became my main project. And then um, I didn't really intend to do anything with it. I went off to teach in exercise science. So my bachelor's is in exercise science. And uh, I was teaching primarily sport nutrition and then anatomy and physiology. And my interests uh, really were focused on uh, performance nutrition and supplementation. Uh, And I still was really passionate about um, skeletal muscle phys, but I was really focused on, on teaching. And in my um, third year of teaching, I was discovered by uh, Dr. Mike Isratel of Renaissance Periodization in the Facebook group for the International Society of Sport Nutrition. I was having a collegial debate with someone. And I think Mike uh, was impressed, I I suppose, by um, what I was speaking about and, and how I was speaking about it. And I had a blog at that time. And I was doing some um, science communication, you know, about sport nutrition. And so he reached out to me and asked if I wanted to um, you know interview, and, and so they recruited me. And I worked with them for uh, four years. And uh, for the first year I was trying to teach full-time. That was really challenging, and then uh, Instead of going up for a promotion in my fifth year of teaching, I resigned (laughs) and I went to coaching full time. Um, And I started my own business about six months after that. Um, is the telehealth company. And at the time I was really just kind of helping folks who were uh, navigating GI distress and their relationship with food, sort of like a, a unique little niche area there. And I was using uh, telehealth because I really like to have kind of video um, discussions with folks, you know, sort of that face-to-face. And uh, just this year, I went to um, coaching my and running my business full time. And um, as and, you know, working with with Shannon Beer and our comprehensive coaching framework and our Bridging the Gap articles and, and project and um, just started writing for Examine too. So I think it's just that I am insatiably curious and I really like um, learning everything there is to know about whatever topic I'm interested in at the time. And uh, it started with skeletal muscle fizz and then I accidentally got into gut health. <laughs>
0: So you're into gut health before it was cool. Um, But and social media will have you believe that gut health is really easy to to fix and you have to just eat certain foods. Um, And that's why I wanted to get you an expert in the field on uh, to talk about these kind of things, because it's not that simple. And like, we're going to start with bloating here. And when I looked into bloating, like the research first, I was actually blown away with I guess, how many like causes and signs and symptoms there are Um, and I just went okay that's a little bit over my head and out of my scope. Um, So I'm going to get a professional in to talk about this topic, so can you just uh, tell the FNC community kind of what bloating is um, and how it might be different to them just feeling full Um, even some signs and symptoms and some causes of bloating.
1: Well, bloating can actually be really difficult for people to identify and differentiate because it's something that's so subjective. It can be something that's caused by air that's either trapped in the the upper GI tract, so gastric uh, or stomach contents being filled with air because maybe we're eating really quickly and swallowing air. And that's usually expelled by belching or burping. And then we can have air that uh, is in the lower GI tract Usually that's not going to be the result of swallowing it, but it's going to be the result of gas production from the microbes that inhabit the gut. So as they are fermenting substrates to make energy for themselves, they could produce short-chain fatty acids or other metabolites that may be associated with, with health or disease, or they can produce a variety of different gases. So some of those gases are smelly when we expel them. So hydrogen sulfide that we uh, produce if we're, um, you know, metabolizing sulfur containing amino acids, for example, Uh, we can also produce methane, we can also produce hydrogen. And so it's this combination of gases that can build up and that can cause the sensation of bloating. We may also feel bloated from uh, the the stool or fecal matter that is Uh, collected in, in our large intestine, Uh, if we're feeling like we're kind of constipated and backed up, we can have that feel of sort of feeling of of fullness and distension. But sometimes people will uh, have a a subjective sensation of, of bloating that's associated with disordered eating patterns. And they have uh, identified um, a feeling of, of fullness as feeling bloated. So sometimes a person's um, sort of chronic perception of of GI distress in that way could be a sign of some some disordered eating uh, patterns or an eating pathology. So it's really interesting to look at kind of how we perceive that versus what's actually going on um, and and kind of that points to why it can be so complicated to, to really figure out.
0: Okay, so what could like some remedies be for someone who's experienced bloating? And it's more like, you know, got like chronic bloating not just like a, a one-off kind
1: of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I usually have kind of a, a multi-step process that I recommend. So if something is feeling really off, you're, you're noticing that you're feeling very bloated and there's maybe a lot of gas buildup or you're feeling really constipated and uncomfortable quite often, then first step is to go to a gastroenterologist because they're going to be able to run validated tests to rule out the presence of a potential disease. Um, And so they're usually going to, you know, they might do a colonoscopy or a scope. They wanna take a look at the anatomy of your intestines. Um, You know, they may do some some, um, sampling, you know, taking a biopsy and just making sure that um, the tissues are healthy. And from there, if the tissues are healthy, then maybe there's something functional going on. So they may uh, want to determine if you have maybe an ir- irritable bowel syndrome or some other sort of disease that's affecting just the function of the intestines. if the tissues look normal. If that's the case, they may recommend some pharmaceutical interventions. So there are some drugs that can affect motility or movement of the gut and can influence both constipation and diarrhea. Uh, If that's not the route that a person wants to take, then in the case of irritable bowel syndrome um, or, you know, the absence of any disease, they're just experiencing bloating, then they could go to some dietary modifications that could help to reduce the production of gas in the gut. And uh, one version of that would be the low FODMAP diet. So FODMAPs uh, stand for fermentable oligo dye, monosaccharides and polyols. That's a really long way of saying um, carbohydrates, that can be fermented by the microbes in your gut. And so they include things that we would find in whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and legumes, uh, and, and also sugar alcohols that we might see in a variety of, of diet products, like sugar-free products. And um, those, some of those can be really quickly fermented and they produce a lot of gas really quickly. And that can cause that feeling of distension or stretching and pain and discomfort. Um, so they could do, uh, any, you know, version of the the low FODMAP diet, they have kind of more stringent traditional styles, or you might want to keep a food journal, you know, for a few days and kind of just track how you're feeling after you eat your meals. And if you notice that there's a pattern, Oh, after I eat asparagus, you know, I feel really bloated every time I eat asparagus. You could try to just remove asparagus for a few days and see if your, if your symptoms improve, if your, if your digestive comfort improves and then bring it back in. And if you get bloated again, then it was probably the asparagus. And then it's just about, you know, modifying your intake so that you're not eliminating all of those foods entirely because your microbes really need those, but to just find amounts that you can, can digest comfortably.
0: Yeah. So you would recommend like first go going to a gastroenterologist, and then working your way down rather than skipping straight to the low FODMAP diet?
1: I think that's, that's probably the most prudent just because it would be such a shame to miss out on something that's potentially serious, you know, in, in the process of doing the elimination diet, other people could have different perspectives and it, it makes sense to say, you know, try a dietary modification first. Uh, but that's just kind of my approach to say like, have you visited a gastroenterologist yet? And, um, you know, chances are maybe nothing's wrong and that's great, but just in case it can be really uh, informative, you know, just to know if if there's something going on, especially considering, um, you know, the, the prevalence of, of IBS. So it's fairly common. And also the increasing prevalence and, and younger age at onset of colorectal cancer. So I just think it's a good idea to, you know, go get, Check out every so often
0: yeah yeah it's certainly worth the worth the time uh if you're going to get the answers because the last thing i would do is make the changes to your diet and you might feel a little bit better um but the the long-term consequences are still there so um you touched on ibs so what are some some long-term consequences for people that do suffer with ibs
1: well ibs really does affect quality of life um, so IBS comes in a few different forms, IBS with uh, pro- predominantly constipation, predominantly diarrhea, or mixed, where people might oscillate between the two. It can be brought on by an infection. Um, so people could have like, a, you know, they get a bad bout of, of food poisoning or an infection, um, you know, traveling you know, overseas or something, and then they end up with IBS afterwards, Uh, but by and large, the causes are really unknown. So it's something that comes on and you wonder like what's going on. Yeah. I used to have great poops and and now things seem to have gone haywire and um, you know, you go to a gastro and they rule out everything else. You know, you don't have Crohn's colitis or um, you know, or celiac, there's nothing wrong with the tissues. And so, you know, ruling everything out, then you end up with a a diagnosis of IBS and um, the, while it, It may not be, um, you know, directly harmful to the intestines. It certainly is invasive in terms of, like I mentioned, you know, quality of life because there's going to be an urgency of, you know, I need to know where the bathrooms are. That's very stressful or the discomfort of, you know, not having a bowel movement, uh, you know, more than maybe once or twice a week. Um, And it can certainly get in the way of people wanting to to train, you know, if you notice that, yeah, you know, if you're feeling like really uncomfortable, you can't, you know, wear your squat belt or you're worried that in the middle of your, you know, cycling um, ride, you're, you're going to have to stop and you know, have a seat in the bushes or something. Um, And uh, and IBSD is associated with um, increased risk of intestinal permeability. uh, And that is, you know, some people call that leaky gut. Um, that's not really the, the most um, <laughs> the most accurate term, you know, it's the one that's overused a little bit. But intestinal permeability really is a, a real phenomenon. We don't know what the clinical outcomes are, but there seems to be a um, higher likelihood of having uh, leakage of certain um, endotoxins that can cause an immune response. So there's potential there for, um, you know, perhaps some, some altered level of inflammation if the person does have that altered intestinal permeability. Um, but that's kind of an extrapolation. We don't even know what that would mean and maybe nothing. Um, and then also in terms of just nutrient uh, assimilation and folks who have IBSD that have really rapid stool transit, they may not be absorbing uh, all of the nutrients, you know, because it's passing through the GI tract so quickly. And um, while we don't know, again, that the clinical implications of sort of unique profiles of, of the gut microbiome of, you know, the different microbes, there, there does seem to be a difference in those who have IBS C versus IBSD. Um, so the, the long-term outcomes of that unknown, but, you know, there's still, again, uh, a potential mechanism by which there could be some issue because we don't see those same profiles in, in, in healthy controls. Uh, but, but the, I would say probably the most Um, immediate thing to think about would just be, you know, quality of life and nutrient assimilation and training.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like the increased, I guess, severity of the, of the symptoms leads to a decreased quality of life as well. So I think if people have both either IBSD, which is like diarrhea or IBSC, which is constipation, it's really worth taking the time to, to sort it out um, and, and I guess improve and trying to reduce those symptoms that you're, uh, I guess experiencing because it's going to have such a benefit in in the long term. So, kind of don't just like put up with it. Um, actually, yeah, yeah. Go, go and get it sorted out.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Because there are things that can improve your your symptoms and quality of life, and uh, you know the the psychological effects really are documented. And um, and and people with IBS are also more likely to have really restrictive. Uh, types of exclusion diets, and that could long term, you know, lead to nutrient deficiencies. You know, if a person's eating a very, very restrictive diet, uh, that's more likely to be uh, found in people who have more severe symptoms. You know, we don't have cause and effect. It could be like, you know, is the diet contributing to your symptoms, or you know, is the severity of symptoms leading you to be more and more restrictive with your diet. Um, so I think, it, yeah, like you said, it, it really is worth it and, and you really can feel better. And I think a lot of people just, they feel like they're resigned to it because it's just their life or, you know, they feel, uh, embarrassed or like they don't have someone to turn to, um, because, you know, IBS diagnosis can sometimes just be here, you got IBS and you can take these pills. Um, but there are definitely ways to, to manage it and feel better.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned before, like, you know, is it association or not? And I think maybe we can talk about even stress with that as well. And I know there's a, the, the gut brain axis. So can we maybe talk a bit more about that and how stress comes into play with IBS?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, well, there's a really um, an interesting correlation between sort of mood disorders like uh, depression or anxiety and IBS, that uh, about 50% of folks who have one will, will also have the other. So there is a you know, pretty strong association. And of course it could be you know, that IBS is very stressful and it causes a lot of anxiety. And also that the, uh, the gut-brain axis links our, our brain to our intestinal tract um, via, via the vagus nerve. And uh, we also have some potential peripheral connections. So the vagus nerve is putting out our para, the majority of our parasympathetic nervous system tone. So it's what's regulating the sort of like the rest and digest side of things. So that's increasing um, gut motility, which means like digestion and absorption of nutrients. Uh, but the microbes can produce... Uh, precursors of neurotransmitters or actual neurotransmitters that could potentially communicate uh, via the vagus nerve or via the periphery. So as they're entering circulation, they could come into contact with areas of the brain that are open to circulation. Um, one that I think it's really overhyped would be that of, of serotonin. So gut derived serotonin has a lot of activity, a lot of activities in the periphery. So it regulates uh, substrate metabolism during the fasting phase. It regulates gut motility, but it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. So when people say like you know serotonin is you know most of it's made in your gut, if you're you know your gut can make you happy. Um, That's a little bit of a a misnomer because the serotonin that's in our brain is produced via uh, a slightly different enzymatic pathway and uh, is probably a a pool that's discrete from that that we would see in the periphery. Um, But again, you know, they can make um, the the precursors to serotonin um, and, uh, you know, and other neurotransmitters that could come into contact with the brain. So it's likely that they do influence mood. Um, but we just don't have a, a solid understanding of that yet because the majority of studies looking at the gut brain axis that can come close to, to a causal relationship have been done with rodents. And, and I would say, you know, do mice have moods? I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Not too sure yet. Um, yeah. so yeah, we like talking about stress here as well. I that's that, um, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy has mm-hmm. been used, um, for yeah. people with IBS.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, um, hypnosis as well. Yeah. So, um, both of those and, um, uh, yoga as well. Um, they have all been associated with improvements in, in sort of like global, uh, symptom scores and quality of life. So, uh, you know, some of it could be down to, um, better sort of management of the stress that comes with IBS and then that could have, you know, potential cyclical effect. Of like well, now we feel less stressed, and so maybe the symptoms do then become less severe. Um, uh, and it's also something that, you know, we don't have a, a solid understanding of yet either. You know, so I think it's a really um, a compelling area that uh, begs for more for more research because the more I think people feel empowered you know, that they can manage their symptoms through something like CBT or, or yoga, um, or, you know, just, uh, things that are within their own capacity. That's not like a drug that they have to take and not to say there's nothing wrong with taking drugs, but, you know, I think people appreciate when they feel capable of managing symptoms on their own.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like also what you've mentioned about like we don't know all the answers yet and like you're an expert in the field and, and you're admitting that we don't know the answers. And it's, it's funny because it, on social media, it could seem like it's a pretty easy fix for all these kind of things. Um, so, so far, if you're experiencing some symptoms with the gut, like you know bloating, IBS, um, obviously go and see a professional, but there are things that you can do with your diet, but even some stress management techniques like yoga, um, even with maybe some mindfulness meditation uh, or using an app like Calm, could be ways to try and you know reduce your symptoms of stress or anxiety and see if that's something that you can control and try and see see what happens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I've noticed that that folks that I've worked with, um, even if they see you know that their symptoms have sort of reemerged, you know they're having a few rough days. Maybe they ate something that was super fodmapy and they're feeling really rough. Um, even if the, uh, the, the kind of like score of, you know, abdominal discomfort is similar to what it was a, a year ago, now they feel less stress and less anxiety about it because they know what what's causing it. They know that they have, um, you know, if they want to, there are like, you know, o- over the counter things that they can take to manage some of that and that it will subside. And so even just having that perspective on it can reduce the anxiety and psychological distress and potentially, you know, improve quality of life, even if the symptoms come back, because there's really not going to be, you know, an end all be all cure for IBS yet. Um, You know, so it's kind of that also awareness of just, okay, what are the foods that agree with me? If I eat something that doesn't agree with me, what's going to happen? How long will that take? How can I manage it? And just being in that place of empowerment rather than feeling like you are sort of a victim of whatever you're eating
0: yeah and there's no like there's no longer that mystery as well of like oh why is this happening to me what what's causing Mm it when like you're in control you know what's happening um and you know like you know what to do to try and mitigate those symptoms as well right exactly now we've mentioned trips to the bathroom a couple of times so what would you say would be a regular amount of times to go to the bathroom for for people
1: the range is actually pretty broad. It's anywhere from three times a day to three times a week would be considered within the normal range. Uh, when a person is, you know, going to a gastroenterologist seeking a diagnosis, there are specific criteria that they use. So they wouldn't only use, you know, bowel movement frequency. They're also going to be asking about like stool quality. Um, if there's pain and if the pain is relieved, you know, once they've had a bowel movement and things like that. So, so there are kind of other aspects to what's kind of considered, um, you know, normal. And, uh, and so stool quality is kind of the other thing to consider. So, you know, within that realm of, of frequency, then also looking at uh, people can look up the Bristol stool scale way of rating the sort of the firmness of your stool. And you're kind of also looking for a middle of the road firmness that kind of comes out in, you know, one piece comfortably. um, And that indicates that, you know, you're, you're properly hydrated. You are assimilating all of the nutrients that you can and, and things are functioning like they normally should. And then you can also look at stool color, which should ideally be a brownish color if you see kind of extremes very black or very red or very green uh, or very yellow that could indicate a number of different uh, disease states, either of the GI tract or or the accessory organs within like the gallbladder and liver
0: yeah just going to make sure that you remember the last time you ate beetroot if you are if you do that (laughs) yes
1: yeah yeah that can be super alarming if you're (laughs) if you're keeping track and then you're like what is this
0: (laughs) It scared it scared me so much one day I was like Oh my god what's happened and then i was like oh you ate beetroots all right <laughs>
1: yeah that's a good point yeah there are definitely some foods that can affect uh the color of your of your poo, so keep yeah. that in mind <laughs>
0: uh all right so with um with gut health what kind of things can people focus on or should they focus on to promote i guess uh, an overall like, positive um gut uh, microbiome and, and bacteria
1: Yeah. um, Well, there's, that's again, one area that's, that we think we, the internet would have us think that we know more than we actually do, but uh, what is becoming more consistent in the literature and and what we can see now with, with better and better technology, that's becoming um, reasonably expensive rather than exorbitantly expensive is that uh, folks who are eating a diet, Uh, folks who are maintaining like a long-term dietary pattern that includes uh, you know fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes doesn't have to be vegetarian but includes a lot of plants that means that they're taking in a lot of microbe accessible carbohydrates so those are the uh, dietary carbohydrates that are resistant to our digestive enzymes and so they reach the large intestine and the microbes can use those for energy. So it's sort of that, you know, we can't use them and it's like one man's trash is another man's treasure. And so, um, so, so the microbes really uh, do need those to thrive. And if we're taking in a wide variety, then that means that we have a wide variety of nutrients for a wide variety of microbes. So we don't know which uh, microbes prefer which carbohydrate type yet. And so it's sort of give them all of them. And that way you're, you aren't inadvertently, uh, you know, um, applying selective pressure to just one group that, that may need something and they're not getting it. And that can certainly happen if we're having a diet that's, that's devoid of fiber or inadequate in fiber. So the other thing that we haven't been able to, to parse out yet would be the independent effects of physical activity. On the microbiome, because the vast majority of studies that are looking at the effects of physical activity really haven't controlled for diet. And so people who are, um, you know, professional athletes or even, um, you know, recreational athletes, their dietary patterns are probably going to look different from people who are sedentary. So we really have two variables going on there, you know, in terms of like their, their macronutrient ratio, many variables, actually, macronutrient ratio, total energy intake um then you know the addition of like coffee uh or you know various sports supplements that have that are high in nitrates and beetroot, um and then on top of that the physical activity so there are a lot of different factors that could be potentially influencing the microbes And and a recent study on bodybuilders Um, implied that maybe the diet is influencing or regulating or modifying the effects of physical activity. Because what they found was that bodybuilders who were eating a very high protein, uh, low fiber diet, didn't have the elevated diversity that we would expect to see in in an active population. Their microbiomes were not any different from, from the sedentary individuals. Whereas bodybuilders who were taking an adequate fiber did have the elevated diversity that we would see. And, uh, and and when we look at the other studies that uh, have looked at you know, athletes and physically active people, they tend to see greater mo- microbial diversity uh, when they're uh, engaging in high levels of physical activity. But we have uh, really only <laughs> four studies thus far that have actually controlled for diet. Two of them saw a difference in in active versus sedentary people, and two of them didn't. Uh, So it's sort of a eh, (laughs) insert shrug emoji, you know, but um, but it's probably still a really good idea to engage in physical activity. Still a really good idea to eat a wide variety of different plant foods, um, and and. Probably still a good idea to eat fermented dairy because that's the only food that right now meets the World Health Organization's definition for a probiotic food because it's actually been associated with um, benefits for, for the host, for humans. Everything else, the, the supplements, the probiotics, some of them do have applications. So, um, uh, digestive enzymes could be, you know, if a person wants to take lactase or alpha galactosidase. That can help with lactose and, um, and the carbohydrates found in beans. So that could help with some of the digestive discomfort. But for the most part, you know, probiotics have very limited applications. And a lot of the other supplements that we're seeing either have no evidence for their efficacy uh, or they've been studied and they don't do anything. Um, you know, and, and so it's kind of one of those things of like, you don't have to try and throw absolutely everything at the gut microbiome it's an ecosystem these organisms have co-evolved with us for millions and millions and millions of years like they're pretty okay they're actually super resilient and if you feed them they're going to be all right
0: awesome yeah and i think on the um probiotics topic like you've done a great article on that for persistent nutrition so i'll link to that in the show Mm -hmm. notes anyway um, are there any things that we should avoid for our gut health
1: it's going to be really obvious stuff like um, uh, high intake of alcohol. <laughs> I mean, and then some of these are like well for health in general. Yeah. But um, you know, a, a couple glasses of red wine per week, that's probably okay. That seems to be um, you know people who report that don't see damage to, to their microbiome, you know, the reduction in in microbial diversity. Um, but beyond that, you know, uh, more than than moderate to low. Uh, alcohol intake or anything that's not red wine, that actually seems to have a negative effect on microbial diversity. So probably not great to be drinking a lot. Um, Probably not great to be sedentary. Uh, Probably not great to eat a really refined diet that doesn't have fiber in it. And um, probably not great to smoke. There's emerging data on on the microbiome and, and tobacco smoking. So that's really interesting stuff. Uh, but not anything that I think is super surprising to people. You know, I think these are just practices that are um, you know supportive or or potentially harmful to human health. and then they also by chance happen to be supportive or harmful to the the ecosystem of microbes in our gut. I would say the other thing to avoid would be things like detoxes and cleanses that you know claim to Um, you know, rid you of toxins or rid you of, uh, you know, quote unquote, bad microbes, Um, you know, microbes are, um, they're sort of like, you know, you can think of like, if people like dogs and, you know, some people are like, you know, there's not really bad dogs. It's just dogs that have been brought up in bad situations. It's the same thing with microbes. You know, no microbe is out there just like, well, very few that we're naturally inhabited with. They're not going to be out there like, I'm going to make you sick no matter what at all costs. they're they're pathogenic in context. So they have to um, grow in number to a great enough extent that that they sense through through something called quorum sensing that there's enough of them that they can overcome the host defenses and they can cause illness. And that's when they start producing the things that make us sick. Now there are exceptions with things like foodborne pathogens that very low amounts, we ingest those and make us sick. But when it comes to the, the balance of microbes in our gut, if we're doing the things like eating of a wide variety of plants and engaging in physical activity, they maintain a relative uh, homeostasis in terms of more beneficial and neutral microbes. And then the ones that are potential pathogens, they're not going to waste their precious energy trying to cause illness. Um, you know, they, they aren't gonna produce their, their virulence factors. So, um, so the cleanses and detoxes are Mostly a waste of money, but also can be harmful to you because they're usually going to give you diarrhea. and that's that's not a great thing for the GI tract. Um, and it's the same thing with something like um, you know uh, use of like colonics and whatnot. You know the majority of our microbiome is housed in our colon. And and that's, you know, when we're constantly flushing that out, we could be flushing out some of the the luminal microbes, the ones that kind of hang out in the center of the intestine. Um, And and, uh, that's probably not a great thing to do all the time because they do play a role in immune defense. And again, we can't pick and choose which microbes we're supporting or removing you know we can't just say oh we're just going to take out just the pathogenic ones that's just not how it works not even how antibiotics work so avoiding those things because you know they're pseudoscience and they're harmful um outside of something that like you need to do for a colon prep you know colonoscopy prep you know that's that's an exception
0: yeah yeah that's a a really good really good point there um are there any like buzzwords you've seen in regards to gut health that people should be aware of. And so like, yeah, on, t- on top of the detox thing, is there anything else? Like, okay, that's a big red flag. Don't go near that.
1: Mm. Anytime someone says that like dysbiosis causes something, dysbiosis is not a known, first of all, there's not one form of dysbiosis. Dysbiosis comes in many flavors. <laughs> it doesn't have one definition, even in the literature, it's just a change um, compared to the, the control group. Uh, And so dysbiosis can sometimes be associated with an increased number of pathogens or a loss of beneficial microbes, but we really don't know what the clinical outcomes would be. We haven't established a cause and effect relationship between the microbiome and any disease. So if someone is claiming that dysbiosis is a cause for something and and, or that they can cure dysbiosis, that's definitely a red flag. Uh, If people are saying that leaky gut is a cause for something, that's definitely a red flag, because again, we don't have any cause effect relationships between intestinal permeability and anything else. Um, When people make claims about candida, so things like you need a candida cleanse or that you have a candida overgrowth, uh, candida is, um, uh, is a microbe that can thrive to problematic numbers in places like the vaginal canal and in the throat. So we could have like a a yeast infection or thrush and it can form biofilms on um, surgical implants. But when we look at the intestinal tract, there's really very little evidence that they could even form a biofilm there. And also we wouldn't want to remove them entirely. They're part of the normal ecosystem. And we don't have a causative relationship between those and any sort of diet either. So the, the old, um, you know, the stance on like, oh, eating too much sugar causes yeast overgrowth. Actually, two studies have shown that to not be the case. So, you know, we really have evidence, not just that there's no evidence, there's actually evidence against that claim. So uh, those are some of the big red flags Or if people are promoting food sensitivity tests, like IgG food sensitivity tests, that's red flag, those are not validated. Or um, making claims about doing uh, like a comprehensive stool analysis and trying to derive clinically relevant um, interventions from that, like, oh, you have too much streptococcus. Well, those labs establish those reference ranges arbitrarily. Um, So we really don't have a, a clinical validation for that test. And finally, making claims about personalized nutrition based on one's microbiome So they, they are using methods that we would use in research, you know, like a 16S uh, RNA type of analysis to identify who's there, but rather than your microbiome telling you, um, you know, this is what you need to eat. These are the ideal foods. Those microbes are really indicating what you've been eating. And if you look at like the genes that are, that are present, uh, you can't really tell what's active with, with most of those analyses, but they're telling you what those microbes have been doing based on what you've been eating. So it's not a it's not a prescriptive test. It's a it's a descriptive test.
0: Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So plenty of information there that people can kind of look at. If you want to improve your gut health, you know, basically wide variety of plans and exercise, limit alcohol, smoking, um, and being sedentary, everything else, pretty much don't worry about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they're I'm glad you mentioned the probiotics article because they certainly have some applications, but yeah, by and large, I mean, there's, there are more ineffective than effective supplements when it comes to the gut right now.
0: Yeah. And like, that's what we want to try and help people with is like actually getting the most bang for your buck for the time and effort you're spending on your diet. And if you're someone who's like buying, you know, all these supplements for your gut health or trying all these things that aren't working you know, you're basically wasting your time, effort and money and, and you might like be getting diet, like diet fatigue as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is, you know, when people are feeling, um, uh, anxious about their food and they're very restrictive, you know, that constant sort of, um, cognitive load can be, fatiguing in and of itself and and cause stress, you know, and and feeling like you are like just, you know, hemorrhaging out of your wallet, you know, spending all this money on all these things. And it could be just as, as simple as, you know, I have anecdotally one client um, removed apples. That was it. That was the change. That was the only thing that was really causing extreme GI distress. You know, oh, I was eating two or three apples a day and now I'm eating none and I feel better. And it was like, there's no need to eliminate all foods or to buy anything. It was just a systematic process of determining what, she, you know, what, which food was upsetting her, um, her balance of, of uh, microbes, you know.
0: And also guys, this is not us saying that apples are bad. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is just like, you know, when people like grab one thing like, oh my God, apples are the worst thing ever now. Like it's like, hey, no, yeah. for, for one person they removed apples and it was a great thing for them. Doesn't yeah. mean that everyone needs to demonize the apple.
1: Right, exactly. Apples are excellent. They just they have <laughs> sorbitol in them, and you know that that gets yeah. some people. But um, yeah. you know the important thing to remember about those fermentable carbohydrates is that the microbes are using them for energy. So it's it's like probably not a great idea to completely remove them forever and ever. You know, and and basically say like, oh, sorry, you know, fend for yourselves. Like most of them can't live very long without some form of sustenance.
0: Yeah. Exactly right. Um, Okay. So I thought we'd wrap up with a few questions from the FNC community. So one of them is raw veggies. Are they better than cooked? And should we eat more raw veggies?
1: Um, Well, better is sort of a subjective term. They, um, They may be slightly more gas forming. So if you are eating a veggie that is high in FODMAP content, and you were going to get gassy from it. You might get gassier if it's uncooked because you haven't sort of started the mechanical process of of breaking those things down. Um, and there are there's some evidence that you know cooking um, and processing of these foods can reduce the the FODMAP content. You know, especially if we're sort of like boiling it, and some of them are water soluble, and they might you know leach out into the water. So that might, so cooking might make it actually a little bit more uh, digestible for us uh, or less likely to be gas forming. Um, But if you like to have raw veggies more and you think that cooked veggies are gross, then I would say raw veggies are better because then you're more likely to include them in your diet. And certainly some just are better raw than cooked. So better is sort of subjective in terms of like your enjoyment and adherence. Pick the one that you like the most. If you're having a difficult time with digestion, then opt for cooking, um, like a cooking, boiling, steaming, mashing. Uh, that can kind of help with the digestibility, or even um, you know buying canned versions. So don't we don't want to like demonize canned versions; they're just as good, or like frozen veggies also just as good. So we don't need to always go for fresh if it's going to be you know accessibility and costs are going to be limiting our options.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, you know, pick the veggies that you enjoy. They are the best ones.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah, di- diversity is great, but, you know, mostly pick the ones that you enjoy. Yeah. And the worst ones are peas. Absolutely, they are disgusting.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I would say the worst ones for me have to be like radishes and Brussels sprouts.
0: Oh, I love Brussels sprouts. I tried purple ones this week for the first time. So good. <laughs> you can keep them i don't
1: know they're so bitter to me i'm just
0: like oh it doesn't matter what you do we're like oh i they saute them in oil
1: and bacon and stuff and i'm like maple
0: syrup yeah
1: oh really wow no i would say just like well i don't eat bacon anymore but like i would just take the bacon and leave the breath yeah yeah
0: yeah um okay next question is on apple cider vinegar for gut health are there any benefits or even in general are there any benefits for apple cider vinegar at all
1: Um, So it's so funny because I had forgotten that um, you had mentioned this, you know, when you sent the the questions in the email and then I posted about it. And um, so I didn't mean to, to, you know, spoiler alert, but there is a post on Instagram. I just put (laughs) up on vitamin PhD on apple cider vinegar. And uh, as far as gut health benefits, no, Uh, it's really strange that it's kind of come up as like a replacement for stomach acid. Now people are like, if you have indigestion, drink apple cider vinegar. And I don't know if anyone has ever been in contact with hydrochloric acid, but it is nowhere in the realm of apple cider vinegar. Like you open the jar of hydrochloric acid and your eyes immediately begin to sting. Like You have to open it behind a hood so that you protect your respiratory pathways, you know? So it's not a replacement for hydrochloric acid um, and, and a very real way too, because the pH range um, is, is logarithmic. so if we have a difference of you know pH of, of 1.5 versus 2.5 it sounds very small, but there's a tenfold difference from one unit to the next. So stomach acid is much more acidic than apple cider vinegar and also the process of digestion isn't just about dissolving stuff in acid so that's not really the way it works either. Um, and uh, and so apple cider vinegar is is not um, a, a potential therapy if someone does have low stomach acid, which is very rare in in you know a young healthy population anyway. Uh, and then I think people might use it for you know they think it's going to like detox or something. Uh, and again, you know pH range in the intestines is is tightly regulated by a buffer system. And uh, all, uh, the microbes are sensitive to fluctuations in pH, and we can potentially modify it short-term with long-term dietary habits. Uh, but again, you know, it's still gonna be maintained within a, a pretty tight range. And ACV is not gonna just preferentially you know, hit the, the, the bad guys, the bad microbes, uh, even if it could. And, and, and aside from that, I, I think you know, people probably suspect um, have benefits for metabolism or, or weight loss. Uh, and there's very limited evidence that it can reduce the blood sugar uh, spike that we see after a meal, and um, could cause GI distress uh, that that inhibits people from eating as much. So, like, if you drink the apple cider vinegar and it burns, and then your stomach hurts, and you don't eat as much, that could lead to weight loss. But I don't know if that's really like the most reasonable intervention someone might want to use. Yeah, but some people
0: would go for that. They would, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. And, you know, some people just like the taste of it and it's like good on a salad. So if it's something that um, you, you know, helps you eat like vegetables, that's great, um, you know? And I think also probably some people think about it You know, like they're fer- like fermented, um, there's jars that have like the mother in it. And so it's like, a could think yeah. of it as a fermented beverage. Um, and yes, fermented foods do contain some microbes, but that doesn't make those fermented foods the same thing as a probiotic. It's not that all of those microbes are considered to be probiotic microbes, or that we're taking them in inadequate amounts to uh, affect our health in a positive way. So again, you know, we have to be. Um, I think it's important to be kind of clear on like what you know what's the probiotic versus what's a fermented food, and knowing that you know not all fermented foods have um, you know any justification. or or evidence in the literature, you know, whether it it could be that they haven't been studied or that they've been studied and it's just like, oh, they don't really seem to do anything.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So pretty much general consensus, apple cider vinegar, you don't need it unless you like it on a salad.
1: Yes, yeah,
0: exactly. Um, And the last question we've got here is about uh, complex carbohydrates Mm -hmm. causing bloating even in small amounts.
1: Yeah, so it could be that it's it's a FODMAP thing. So those FODMAPs aren't all complex carbohydrates. So like fructose and lactose, those uh, wouldn't be considered complex carbohydrates. But when we get to the galacto oligosaccharides, uh, which are found in um, beans mostly, or uh, looking at um, fructans, which we find in like wheat and onion and garlic those are more complex or long polymers of, um, of like glucose units and other things. And so those are usually more more fermentable. And so they can cause a lot of gas, even if we take them in in small amounts. So like onions and garlic are probably the, you know and I'm not saying that they're bad, they're not damaging you, mm-hmm. but those are two of the most gas forming foods that we could potentially eat. And it doesn't take a lot. It's like a few grams of garlic or onion can really cause a lot of bloating. So um, if you are eating complex carbohydrates, uh, or even like whole grains, you know, we're getting the fructans. it sometimes takes a very small amount to result in a lot of gas production.
0: Yeah, interesting. And also mm-hmm. like referring back to what we said before, go and see a, a specialist.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it could be something that is a little bit more serious than just you know reacting just your microbes fermenting things you know especially if you're noticing um you know a lot of of discomfort and whatnot after eating you know whole grain bread it, you know just go get checked out and see if you know there's a potential for like celiac you know why not
0: yeah and i think you know as we as we come to the end of the podcast you know the the whole general consensus of this is that there's no magic pill when it comes to um your diet anyway or or health but especially not when it comes to gut health um despite what people on social media will have you think so take the time to understand what's happening to your body go and see a specialist um, and yes yeah, or try some of these things that, that you've mentioned in the podcast
1: mm-hmm. absolutely
0: awesome um, thank you so much for being on the show uh, to finish with do you have um uh, a book recommendation or a favorite or end or, or a favorite quote at the moment
1: Oh, wow. Okay. One of my favorite quotes, I'll start with that, would be from Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and it's something that his uncle would say when he was having like a really lovely moment. And he would look around and say, if this isn't nice, what is? And so I, I make a point of doing that when I'm having a nice moment. And i um, I am still in the process of, of uh, waiting on some illustrations for the RP um, Gut Health Science book. So it's a bit of a, a primer on sort of the state of the evidence and, um, and and pseudoscience in the realm of gut health. So hopefully that will be out this year. And in the meantime, uh, if people want to get into the sort of the meat of microbiome science. My recommendation would actually be, I think it's called, um, it's yeah, it's Fundamentals of Microbiome Science by A. Douglas. It is a little bit technical, but I think it's a a really solid uh, foundational book to understand what we know and what we don't know about the microbiome. And another great article Uh, would be uh, the microbiome hopes, threats, and and promises, I want to say. And that's by Patrice Connie. I believe that's open access. So just to kind of get a sense of like, you know, what's really going on, what do we really know versus the things that are kind of made up.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. And where can people find you? And do you have anything exciting coming up?
1: Uh, So they can find me um, on Instagram and Facebook at vitamin PhD. And my website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. They're interested in the coaching side of things then check out btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. So that's my collaboration with Shannon Beer. And then we have two interns, uh, Ann Claire and Kate. And so they'll be producing some content as well. And we do have um, a membership group on Facebook, the Comprehensive Coaching Community. And so uh, folks can grab um, subscriptions to that, whether they're coaches or clients. We invite everyone to join that group. We have a planned for another webinar launch in uh, July or August on the spectrum of intentional eating. So that is super exciting. And um, having just started with examine, I actually did see that I had some summaries go live this month. So if people want to check out examine.com, then they can uh, see some of the, the work that I and, and other authors are putting out all around um, nutrition, including
0: gut health. Awesome. And what have you written for Examine recently?
1: Um, There have uh, been a few different summaries and, and I'm working on a few more, mostly around um, inflammatory bowel diseases. So far, we it's it's really great that I, I kind of have free reign in the types of articles that I want to write about. And uh, um, I don't do just gut health stuff, but it's been a lot of uh, inflammatory bowel syndrome um, and uh, or inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome things and sort of looking at what inven- interventions might help and what interventions might not help so much. Uh, and then some of the recent studies also looking at um like large population data with like kind of trying to parse out like gut microbiome diet interactions and patterns.
0: Awesome. So exciting times ahead uh both for you and for comprehensive coaching and bridging the gap. So uh mm-hmm. I just want to thank you for taking the time to be um part of the team FNC community uh this week and hopefully when everything settles down in the world you can come over and uh, hang out with some quakas again.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll be there.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you looking for an understanding and supportive human to talk with, to help with advice and guidance, an objective set of eyes to see what you can improve to move towards your goals in the easiest possible way? At Fortitude, we work with real people and get real results. Sign up for one-on-one coaching today by clicking the link in our show notes and get the support, guidance and accountability of a Fortitude nutrition coach.